the fastest half marathon that I've ever run was in October of 2019. And I just got to be, I didn't set the land speed record or anything. It's just the fastest one that I've ever run in. And the reason it was the fastest was because the last two miles were down a very steep hill. I mean, a really, really steep hill. And I had pushed myself up to that point pretty hard, and I was pretty gassed. But when I hit that hill, I thought, you know what? I can do this, and I can do this at a faster pace. And so I began to fly. At least that's what my brain told me I was doing. I'm certain it looked like something else to uh, the eyes looking on. The reason I bring that up is because we have now reached the downhill portion of the book of Romans. We've had to push ourselves to get here. Some of the deepest theological waters in the Bible and some of the hardest to hear truths in the Bible have resided in Romans 1 through 11. But now the book moves from focusing on foundational doctrines of the faith to building up practical expressions upon those foundational doctrines in the life of a Jesus follower. So you've made it this far. I want you to turn to Romans 12. You're at the top of the hill. High five everybody around you. And if you would, stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning from Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, let me ask you something as we get started this morning. If you were to pick a starting place for exploring the impact of what we believe on what we do, where would you start? Now, my guess, my guess is most of us living in this family-centric, dare I say, family-idolatrous world would start there. We'd start with our families. If the faith is going to mean anything, it must mean something in our family. If that's you, Paul shares your instinct that the epicenter of the faith is our relationships with others. He just doesn't share your starting point. The starting point for the Christian faith is the church. Now, perhaps this is a good place to be reminded of the priority of the church and uh, the priority of our relationships in the church. The church, hear me, this is backed up biblically, the church will one day replace all family ties in eternity. In eternity, we will not relate to one another as, as husbands and wives or as 
uh, as fathers and mothers or sons and daughters or neighbors as friends. We will relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is eternal. The family is temporal, which should cause us to reconsider the wisdom of excusing decreased church attendance and decreased church service in favor of more family time, but that's not today's sermon. I just want to put that out there. But I hope I've done enough to explain why Paul starts explaining the practical effect of the Christian life within the context of our relationships in the church. And in these eight verses, Paul tells us the gospel calls us to three practical expressions of our faith within the church, and the first is this. He tells us the gospel calls us to live sacrificially for God, sacrificially for God. Now, I know that what I'm about to say is silly-sounding. It's silly-sounding because it's silly. I know I've said it to you before, but it's helpful, so I'm going to say it again. Anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, you need to ask yourself what it is therefore, all right? I mean, hopefully that will help you in some way. And if you think about that, you will see that Paul's words in Romans 12 verse 1 are flowing directly out of his words at the end of Romans 11. Beautiful words, which are a magnificent celebration of God, which conclude with these words in verse 36, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. And those are his words flowing from not only that verse, he is saying that everything he's about to tell us in chapter 12 is the natural outcome of everything that he's taught us thus far in this book. In other words, in light of God, Paul is saying, being the kind of God that I've just described at the end of, of Romans 11, and in light of him being the author of the salvation that I've just explained to you for the first 11 chapters of Romans, I appeal to you, and the force of it is this, I urge you, I implore you by the mercies of the God that I've just proclaimed and celebrated to present your bodies as a sacrifice to him. The image is a powerful one, and it's a challenging one. Paul is saying, if you really believe what I've explained to you for 11 chapters, if you really believe that God is the kind of God that I have just celebrated, I'm calling you to step forward and offer on the altar of God your life as a sacrifice to him. Sacrifices typically require the taking of the life of something else. But in light of the gospel, Paul is saying, the only worthy sacrifice is our life. The only sacrifice that is acceptable in light of what has been given to us is our very life. But it's almost as if Paul could anticipate our world in 2022, a world filled with churchy language, spoken in somber tones, but with little understanding of what the words actually mean or any real concern about radically living those words out. So, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he leaves nothing to the imagination when it comes to understanding what sacrifice means. At the end of verse 1 and through verse 2, he says that being a living sacrifice is an act of worship that extricates itself from conformity with the world and applies itself 
to conformity to the will of God. And the means by doing this is a renewal of our mind, of our mind being shifted to a mind that is tuned to the good and the acceptable and the perfect mind of God himself. Now, our problem with that, without realizing it, is that our minds, all of our minds, are tuned to other things. And we only think that our minds are tuned to the good and acceptable, perfect mind of God, at least as, as much as we would profess it to be. I've lost count. I've lost count of how many times as a pastor people have come to me shocked to hear what is in Scripture, which is our, our primary tool for discerning what the will of God is. Shocked to say that on a particular subject, the Bible says X because our minds are tuned more by our culture or our tradition or our politics or our ideology. Take, for instance, the message that we preached on both campuses last week on Compassion Sunday, where, by the way, this is something to celebrate, we as a church across our campuses sponsored all 200 of the children who have signed up for the Compassion Project at our church plant in Aldeas Altus, Brazil. Now, that's good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. We're super excited about that. Now, here's the thing. When you preach for a living, you learn how to read how a room is processing what you're saying, even if no one is saying anything. So, you know, when you say something, people say, well, I agree with that. Good. He needs to preach more of that. Or if I say something that you've never thought about before, you think, oh, I've never thought about before. I, 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 that's interesting. Or if I say something that completely blows up any preconceived notion, saying he's a liberal. <laughs> See how nervous you just got? Huh? Well, he said, the, he said the L word in the pulpit. So, But that's what happens. That's what happens. And, and so last week I was keenly aware that every time I, I used the word justice, people were unbelievably nervous, bordering on a mini-stroke every single time I said it. And it's not because justice isn't a biblical concept. It's the first pillar in the key ethical text in the Old Testament for crying out loud, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Justice is a biblical concept, but our minds have been tuned to reject it as dangerous. What's dangerous is rejecting it. Because Paul says that the sacrifice called for in light of our salvation and in light of who God is, is a mind that is renewed to the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Obviously applying discernment to that discussion, but not rejecting it outright, which is what a lot of us want to do. When Paul says the gospel calls us to live sacrificially for God, he's articulating one of the five habits of a Jesus follower. The habits that frame how we at Blue Valley teach, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's articulating the habit of surrender. And practicing the habit of surrender simply involves declaring, I will daily submit to Jesus as my king, not as my life coach, not as my encourager. I will daily submit to Jesus Christ the Messiah as my king. When you read that we are being called to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, that's what's being demanded. To dethrone your will and 
enthrone the will of God as the central point of your life. That's why we should call into question the authenticity of our salvation if our lives don't bear the mark of someone desperately trying to carry out the will of God. Not doing it perfectly, maybe stumbling along the way, but desperate to do it. The mark of someone who demonstrates the good and acceptable and perfect will of God we serve through what we do, through what we value, to how we respond in a crisis, to how we respond to suffering. Someone who, when pressed, attempts to persuade others of their salvation when their lives bear no witness to the kingly authority of Jesus is someone who needs to question if they really even know that Jesus in the first place because the gospel calls us to live sacrificially for God, to lay aside our will and to take up His. And then Paul points out that the gospel calls us to live sacrificially for others, specifically, again, within the context of the church. And here's the foundation of that call. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Our Western world individualism has convinced us that the Christian faith is essentially a private experience which has an optional corporate expression. But verses 4 and 5 tell us the exact opposite of that truth. They tell us that the Christian faith is essentially a corporate experience that is rooted in a common individual submission to Jesus as King. That individual experience incorporates all of us into one body, and our common joining to Christ makes us dependent on one another for vitality and health. That is why if you are still out there online, barring some legitimate health issues, and there are a handful that I know of, that is why if you're continuing to say, I'll just watch it on the computer, you're hurting yourself spiritually. You are made to function in community with others. Now, the way that Paul illustrates that is by comparing the gifts each of us have as being similar to the various parts of our body. Now, it's important to see that the things he lists as gifts here are not natural in origin. They're not just kind of your personality traits. They are, according to verse 6, gifts born of grace that are experienced in the life of a child of God. And the purpose of these grace-empowered gifts is to help us collectively embody Christ's life on earth and accomplish the good, perfect, acceptable will of God on earth. Now, I personally believe that we are only meant to understand what Paul is doing here as an illustration. In other words, I do not believe that he is giving us a comprehensive list of all of the ways that Christ equips his church to accomplish his will. Nor do I think we are meant to view these gifts as almost all spiritual gift studies do, as gifts that we receive at the moment of salvation that never, ever change. In other words, at salvation, when we're born again, the Spirit of God says, I'm going to make you a, a, a servant, and I'm going to make you a person of mercy. I don't believe that's what we are being told. No one is yet to make a compelling case for me from Scripture that we are given some kind of gift at the moment of salvation that never changes. I know that others can make that compelling case. 
They've not yet made it to me as far as my mind goes. So while I think we should all figure out the purpose that God has for us at this moment in time in our church family and how we can best help our church accomplish the will of God, I'm not a fan of what I think end up being self-indulgent journeys of self-discovery called spiritual gift inventories. I, I just think they, they take the illustration of, of Romans 12 too far. Plus, they end up being used to celebrate our individualism more than not. I'm a servant. I'm mercy, which is the exact opposite of the point that Paul is trying to make in Romans chapter 12. Plus, at the same time, they convince us that if we don't have a particular gift, we don't have to worry about showing us. We can be a jerk, say, it's okay, I don't have a gift of mercy. It's fine. God made me this way. I, 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 I'm lazy, but I don't have the gift of service. It's fine. God made me this way. You get, you get the point. But that doesn't mean that the gifts Paul lists for his illustration aren't helpful to us. They are. They give us an overview of some of the ways that we can be used to serve God's will in the church, and they're all pretty self-explanatory. In other words, we can read the word service. We have an idea what that means. Teaching, have an idea what that means. Exhortation, have an idea what that means. Leadership, we have an idea what that means. Generosity, have an idea what that means. Mercy, have an idea what that means, except for me, because mercy's not my gift. But what a prophecy. That's the one that that maybe we don't understand as well. Well, let's take a little quiz that I think might be able to help us zero in on what it means. I want you to look at the screens right now. I've got two statements up there. Actually, they have two statements up there that one of these defines the work of an Old Testament prophet. All right, here's the first one. Prophets tell God's people what God is going to do in the future. Or the other possible definition of what an Old Testament prophet did, prophets tell God's people what God is saying to them now. All right? So think about which one of those you think describes the work of an Old Testament prophet. All right? Make your pick. Not going to make you say it out loud. If you pick the first one or if you said both, I don't think you're right. All right? I think that second one, prophets tell God's people what God is saying to them now is right because the prophetic formula of the Old Testament, in other words, the announcement, I got a prophecy coming, is this. The word of the Lord came unto, prophet's name, Jeremiah, saying, thus says the Lord. The prophets viewed themselves as announcing God's word to God's people. So for that reason, the best way to understand prophecy in the New Testament is to associate it with preaching, but not exclusively so. The New Testament shows people being used by God to speak specific spontaneous words to his church, words of warning, words of exhortation, words of rebuke, things like that. So I think we can all see how this gift, I think most people understand how central the gift of preaching to God's people in God's church is when it comes to accomplishing the will of God. But also all the others are important. And the call to live sacrificially is a call to lay aside individuality to stop thinking about myself and to start asking as a regular component of my church membership, what is God wanting me to do to help this church? Now, I want you to think about how countercultural that is. We base almost everything about our church involvement on which church will be our church home on what the church can do for us. And Paul here is telling us to base our church experience 
on what we can do for the church family. So the call to live sacrificially for God leads us to a call to live sacrificially for our church family, to not approach this as a place where we receive goods and services, but we approach this as the platform, the basis for my living out my faith for Jesus. In other words, it turns out that in these first several verses of Romans 12, that Paul has on his mind the great commandment of Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the sacrifice part. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're talking about now. That's what we are being called to, to sacrifice our lives to the will of God and to express that will in our work in the local church, which means that there's only one thing in the universe that can blow that up. And we look at it in the mirror every single day. And so Paul wants to make sure, nestled right in the middle of this, that we understand the gospel calls us to live sacrificially to ourselves. And the key verse that explains that to us is verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Nestled right there between the call to sacrifice yourself to God and the call to live out that sacrifice and sacrifice to others in the local church is the call to kill the exalted view of ourselves that we too often carry around. To exercise sober judgment, to not think highly of ourselves, to come down from the ego bender that that most often characterizes our existence and by which social media continues to exist. Instead, we are to think of ourselves in terms of the place that Christ has given us in the body and in his church, and that's what it means for us to consider ourselves in light of our place before God according to the measure of faith that God has assigned us. So what might that mean practically? Laying aside self, killing my desires and my flesh in light of what God wants me to accomplish for his will in the church. Well, let me just give you a couple examples. One of them's negative, one of them's positive. Let's think on the negative side of things about the modern worship experience to process what Paul's getting at here. In today's church, worship has become a commodity to consume and not a vehicle generally that carries us along to encounter Jesus, to adore Jesus. On one side of the equation, you have people get super judgy if you're not using their preferred hymn book to sing everything. And then on the other side, you have people that get super judgy if you're doing anything that wasn't written before 15 minutes ago. So what are both doing? Both are doing the exact opposite of what verse 3 commands. They are saying, worship the experience of singing praise to God is only useful of my time and attention if I like the music or if I like the hymn book. The fact is, to borrow words from a man named Harold Best, a mature Christian is easily edified. I want to say that again. I actually want you to write it down because it's not original with me. It's not ego-driven. You just need to remember that. I found that. I wrote it down. Now I want you to write it down. Harold Best. A mature Christian is easily edified. Meaning what? Meaning that we all admit that we may have preferred styles. 
that even within the context of a family, preferred styles may be different. That's true in our family. Julie's right and I'm wrong. I mean, that's how it works. We all have preferred styles, and we can do that, but we don't need them to encounter Jesus. If it's about Jesus, I'm in. That's what a mature believer does. If they don't know the words, if they're learning a new song, or if it was written a million years ago, if it's about Jesus, they can celebrate it. That's the negative example of what it means to kill self in service of God's will and the church. Here's a positive example. I want you to think about our multiply vision. We, as you know, are a church whose vision it is to become a multiplying church that is establishing campuses locally and planning autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. But you may be as content as you can be in your Sunday school class or in your pew or in your particular ministry at Blue Valley. So content that you've never once prayed about whether God would have you, for instance, go with the core group under the leadership of Alan Finley to plant Overflow Church in Martin City this fall. Or go with a future campus planter to plant another campus. In fact, the very thought of you having to pack up and leave to do those kinds of things kind of makes you a little sick to your stomach. I mean, you're worried, man, that's, I'll just be giving up too much. I like what I have. I like what I have. And yet, it just might be that God plans for the servers and the givers that are going to be required to help, for instance, overflow flourish in Martin City or a future campus to flourish in a part of the community that we currently might not be reaching well, it might be that those givers and servers include you. To even consider that it might be, to pray about it, you'll have to come to grips with the fact that the church doesn't exist to serve you. It doesn't exist to serve your will. It exists to serve the purposes of So in our eight verses today, Paul summarized his gospel message with a call to live out the gospel sacrificially, to yield the authority of our lives to God, to express the living out of that authority in the context of the local church, and to daily submit to Jesus as king to the point that we have no thought of self, we never think more highly of ourselves, we never demand our own way. If we belong to Jesus, this is not the luxury option. This is the normal Christian life. In light of the gospel of Romans 1 through 11, in light of the glorious God at the end of Romans 11, this is the only rational response to live sacrificially. Let's pray.